It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to episode six of The Political Party. This one featuring Jack Straw. You can imagine how excited I was on the evening uh, down at the gig. It was wonderful to have him there. The benefit of his insight, of his wit of his experience really came through in the second half and it was, uh, I don't want to ruin it because there are, there are a couple of things since that I've really dwelt on, more in terms of how the audience reacted to certain things he said, which you wouldn't maybe predict. I don't want to ruin it for you, but uh, enjoy the episode. He was absolutely brilliant and uh, see you on the other side. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome! Hello, hello, hello. Wow, a full house. Good evening and welcome to the final one of the series uh, of the political party. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Matt Ford. Give me a cheer if you've been here before. Quite a few people. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Oh, a lot of newcomers. Hello and welcome. Marvellous. And we, of course, have a a very special guest for you uh, this evening. It's been an incredible year in in politics so far, hasn't it, as we come to the end of the series uh, at the St James Theatre. It's been an incredible week as well. I don't know if you saw uh, last week, Ed Miliband, uh, earlier this month, gave a speech to Google. Now, some of you may have seen this. Most of you, I hope, didn't, because it wasn't very good. Uh, there was a bit in it where... Ed, Ed Miliband, by the way, sounds like Tony Blair with a cold. Yes, he does. Yes, he does yeah, yeah. Mrs Miliband there in the audience, doing it in. She's had a night off. You start with... So Tony Blair would talk like that. Talking about the issues. Look, it's about time in this country that over the winter, as he gets a bit more easily and hasn't picked up his prescription, he ends up talking like that. Come on. <laughs> no, Mr. Speaker, I want to talk about it too. <laughs> Come on. That sort of thing. <laughs> so, Ed, I've only just discovered I can do an Ed Miliband impression. I'm doing it everywhere. Uh, I'll have a copy of the Daily Star, please. Yeah, thank you. Oh, come on. It's great fun doing it, especially when you're buying the Daily Star. Um, but he was at Google, a uh, major multinational company, one of the most famous brands in the world. Ed Miliband's not happy because he doesn't think they pay the fair share of tax. He doesn't think that they're corporate and socially responsible, right? I think that's something that most of us agree with. You know, Starbucks, Vodafone, Google, they've been found wanting. Someone needs to tell them off. Now, the way Ed Miliband did this was to go to their headquarters in London... And uh, he did this, he said, uh, uh, I'd like to start by uh, playing a game that they play on the Have I Got News For You, uh, the odd one out round. He played the odd one out round. He took slides with him, right? And the four people he named, he went, OK, uh, guess which one's the odd one out? Uh, OK, the four are uh, Ralph Miliband, his dad. Right? Ralph Miliband, and I'm not lying, Willy Wonka... <laughs> Potential future world leader has got Willy Wonka in a slideshow somewhere. <laughs> Margaret Hodge, chairman of the uh, Public Accounts Committee, uh, and Google. And do, you, do you want to know which one the old one out is? I'm not even sure they responded to me. They've probably already done it. Uh, it's Ralph Miliband because he believed uh, that you could only deliver social justice through socialism. 
<laughs> and we're off, so let's talk about it. just incredible. Why would you open a speech that? Later on, this one, I had to write this down because it's so incredible I thought I might forget. He played it again, right? He played it again. These were the four he had in his second round. Uh, okay, let's play uh, the other round. Uh, first one, uh, Richard O'Neill, uh, he's a small businessman. Uh, the second is Mohammed uh, Yunus, uh, the microfinance genius. Uh, the third is Charlie Mayfield, uh, head of John Lewis. Uh, and the fourth one is Montgomery Burns, who runs the nuclear power plant in The Simpsons. <laughs> right? Now, <laughs> I'm reading verbatim from his speech, right? Uh, yeah, the other one else, Mr. Burns. He's not such a good guy. <laughs> Are you sure you're, you've got your targets right? So you're going to have to cartoons. I think the Labour Party's lost it. This, this phrase has stuck in my mind. <laughs> he leaves radioactive nuggets lying around. <laughs> right, there is not a single political speech in the world that needs the phrase radioactive nuggets in it. Where were his advisors? Who on earth printed that off and went, Ed? Love the speech. <laughs> radioactive nuggets, it's the new education, 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 I'm telling you. Tough on radioactive nuggets, we can go everywhere with this. Radioactive nuggets! If I went for Ed Miliband now, every speech I'd just be going control F and typing in radioactive nuggets. Ed! Mate, I'm just reading your speech on welfare reform. You're going to put radioactive nuggets in again, mate. What's the matter with you? Radioactive nuggets! And who turns up and plays again? That's the sort of thing a double glazing salesman does at a regional conference. Just want to uh, show you some slides. Uh, strap on in. Whoa, how did that one get in there? Yeah. What are you doing, mate? I don't see Obama turn up at the UN. Okay, let's play a game. Uh, have you heard of the game Bullseye? And one. You can't do it. Stay out of the black and in the red. There's not this game for two in a bed. Diminishes politics to have it done like that. Uh, so he talked to Google, Ed did, uh, about social responsibility, about paying your fair share of tax. Uh, and then a week later it emerged that the Labour Party had received shares instead of a cash donation so that the donor, uh, the owner of JML, could effectively pay less tax. So it looked hypocritical to say the least, right? Looked a little bit off. A few people said, this is, looks like hypocrisy. I didn't really have a major problem with it. Although it's the first time, apparently, shares have been donated to a political party, ever. You, people tend to donate money. That seems to be the, the normal way for political parties to be able to use resources. My concern is that Ed Miliband's gone, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take shares. That was a missed opportunity. Oh, yeah, 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 we'll take shares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My fear is now, now we're taking shares, what else? Old clothes, books you don't need? <laughs> we'll just be in the street shaking a pot. We're just going to turn into Oxfam, Labour head office, or like the British Heart Foundation. Just take money, mate. It's fine. The owner as well, by the way, the Labour Party now owns over a million pounds worth of shares in JML. Now, I don't know if you watch daytime TV, but if you've ever seen um, a garden claw advertised that's not available in the shops, that inexplicably comes with a free pen set, it's made and distributed by JML. They're a shopping channel. The la oh, my God. Oh, no. It's amazing. Who was that? Was that you, Madden? Did you realise who JML were? Have you got shares in JML as well? <laughs> that, that was the bit you were horrified at. I can't believe we're supporting the Labour Party. This is ridiculous. Where will I sell my three-piece toaster now? 
that comes with a free Beethoven CD. <laughs> the stuff they sell on there. If you ever never watched shopping channels, they're incredible. The skill to sell on a shopping channel actually is immense. They will sell anything, and they, they sell normal everyday stuff, just like it's the most crazy thing that's ever been invented. And they're really good at it. Okay, you're watching JML Shopping Channel. Welcome back uh, after the break. Okay, we've got uh, special toaster for you now. What's going at uh, 899? What's going at 699? I'm going to do you for 299. And what's so special about this uh, toaster today? Thank you very much, Liam. Well, this toaster is very special. Not only does it place the toast inside and cook it to your own bespoke timing requirements, thanks to this unique dial on the side, what it will actually do is then present the toast to you so that you can then walk away with it. It's a real innovation in the toasting world. Okay, we're doing it now for 199. Hello, uh, Mrs. Dawes from Wigan. She's, uh, she's gone. It's a phenomenal skill, right? But I don't think it's a skill that the Labour Party needs to get involved in. <laughs> I don't think on the next debate of the deficit reduction in the House of Commons, we need Ed Miller going, well, he's asking how we'll pay down the deficit. By selling at just 599 this incredible commemorative gift plate, uh, commemorating one of Britain's best-loved dogs, the Doberman. <laughs> Look how alert its little eyes are. It's a fitting tribute to one of Britain's leading status dogs. And at 599, it really is a bar girl. <laughs> you, can't, you can't have that getting involved in politics. That's going to make things very difficult indeed. The main, uh, well, the main scandal that's hit politics, of course, has been the lobbying scandal. Did everyone watch Panorama? <laughs> nah. This one gig in the country I thought people might have been interested in what's been going on in Parliament. Basically, there's been a scandal. Panorama did an expose on a Conservative MP called Patrick Mercer. Uh, and what Patrick Mercer did was agree to lobby on behalf of what was a fake lobbying company uh, and table early day motions. Right Now, I'll take you through this because, <laughs> firstly, uh, does anyone here work in Parliament? A few people. Don't be scared. It's a f- yeah, Jack Straw putting his hand up at the back. <laughs> early day motions are... I mean, in terms of parliamentary procedure, there's early day motions and then there are Facebook groups. It's. <laughs> they mean absolutely nothing, right? Retweeting something means more than signing an EDM. But they were presented by Panoramas. Patrick Mercer tabled an early day motion. I thought the biggest thing they're exposing is the fact that MPs are still using these fucking things. <laughs> they're, they're meaningless, just. They're basically just like little Facebook likes. And there are thousands of them in Parliament. Some of them are absolutely ridiculous, but he agreed to table some early day motions on behalf of the Fijian government or a, a lobbying group uh, pretending to be lobbying on behalf of them. Now, Fiji uh, were expelled from the Commonwealth because there was a military coup that overthrew a dictatorship. They have a horrendous human rights record, um, but for two grand a month, Patrick Mercer was more than prepared <laughs> to ask a few helpful questions. Now, the thing is about Mercer is when you watch, a few people may well have seen it's hidden camera footage, so immediately I feel sorry for him. And you think, well, you know what? Sometimes MPs might want countries to get back into the Commonwealth, because actually that might benefit the people of Fiji, right? But there's a bit in it where I worked as a lobbyist for two years uh, in public affairs, which sounds like the title of a Jilly Cooper novel. (laughs) Public affairs. A very social network. (laughs) (laughs) Nowhere near as exactly that. All the public affairs is, there may well be, are there people here that work in public affairs or lobbying? A few over there. Like, I mean, basically, all it is, isn't it, I think, is people who used to work for political parties who thought, hang on, I can get paid more just to introduce other people to these people. <laughs> it's like if someone said, you know your group of mates, I'll give you a fiver every time you bring one of them to the pub. You'd be shit-faced all the time. And most people who work in lobbying are. They're, just, they're people who basically dress like me. Open neck shirt, floppy fringe morons who look like Nicholas Watt from The Guardian, who occasionally go to the cinnamon club and drink Chateau Neuf de Pap. And that's... 
qualifies you as a lobbyist pretty much. All you do is introduce people. And the vast majority of lobbying is ethical. So Make Poverty History obviously was a lobbying group. Campaigning to keep a local school open is lobbying. But when we're talking about parliamentary lobbying, we're talking about multinationals and all that, perhaps try and buy a bit of influence. But Panorama made out that him asking these, tabling these EDMs was tantamount to buying British foreign policy. Now there's a bit in it where I was never that good at lobbying because, because I sound like this. <laughs> Which is not a good voice for lobbying. I sound, I sound like someone from a Shane Meadows film. <laughs> you alright, mate? You're going to sign that petition, mate? <laughs> No, you're not keen on that, are you, mate? <laughs> What's the problem, mate? I'm not, I'm not calling a few, mate. You know, it just doesn't sound... It's not a voice of authority. Mercer has got a proper former sergeant major's voice about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what. Let's ask a few questions. It's one of those voices that makes it sound like you're doing more than you're doing, right? When I worked in lobbying, all I would do is like, ring a few Conservative MPs, book in a meeting. I'd say, oh, we're going to meet Theresa May to talk about... I worked for uh, Consumer Focus, which is a, basically a quango that was lobbying on to improve uh, Job Centre Plus for, to help the unemployed, lobbying to keep post offices open to help the elderly and people like that. It was ethical lobbying, right? But the problem is you get sucked into that game. So instead of saying, all right, yeah, I've booked in Theresa May, we're going to see her next Wednesday, I'd say, guys, <laughs> call a big one. <laughs> call a bloody big one. We are in at CCHQ. Don't ask me how I did it. Don't you bloody ask me. I basically just rang up, went through the common switchboard. <laughs> Can I speak to Theresa May, please? Did it outside on my mobile so that they wouldn't hear me. Guys, I called a bloody big one. That's all lobbying is. Just meeting people and saying, can you sign this, please? And MPs, most MPs don't say no. They go, let's chat about it. And that's it. And then people think, oh, what a lovely guy. He's agreed to support my campaign. So Patrick Mercer got caught out doing this. Tabling EDMs, early day motions. Now, for the uninitiated, they are just... There's thousands of them out there, and some MPs will sign thousands during their career. I've worked for MPs that refuse to sign them because they're just meaningless, really. They very rarely lead to any change in government policy. But Panorama said, and he was tabling early day motions on behalf of Fiji. I'm going to read you now some early day motions from this session of Parliament that have been signed by MPs, right? So they made out that they were going to be on, like, you know, Arms to Africa or Major... And some of them are... Uh, but not all of them. So this is one. This this one is sad. First out of the box, right? This one is sad. This is tabled by an MP called David Morris. Is he in? <laughs> if anyone knows him, right? This is, and he's the only person who signed this. Right? <laughs> Some EDMs get like 400 signatures. That's just, this is one. Now he's a Conservative MP. Just have a guess at what he's trying to do here. This is his motion to put before the House of Commons. That this House notes that government saved £10 billion last year by cutting the number of civil servants, reforming public sector pensions and selling off property, believes this is a significant achievement along the road to getting the UK back on its feet and encourages the government to continue to take the tough decisions needed. Yeah, read between the lines. It should have just said, Dear Prime Minister, I'm David Morris and I'd love to be in the Cabinet, by the way. (laughs) That's all it is, isn't it? Well done, Dave. That's all it's written. This one, right? This, now, I found this one, I thought, ooh, I wonder who they're on about here. It says, this house acknowledges that EDMs have been used on a number of occasions to highlight important issues. However, in one instance, almost 100 EDMs were submitted by an honourable member in a few months, leading to the suggestion that EDMs are being used as a smokescreen for a significant amount of parliamentary inactivity. <laughs> in other words, don't you dare blow the fucking cover, mate. I'm down the pub from 12 noon, but I sign 300 of these babies a week and I get in every local paper across the country. Now this one, this is a very famous one. This was submitted by the late Tony Banks, who's an absolute legend. This, uh, this got three signatures. The title of it is Pigeon Bombs. <laughs> right? This house is appalled 
but barely surprised at the revelations in MI5 files regarding the bizarre and inhumane proposals to use pigeons as flying bombs. <laughs> Recognises the important and life-saving role of carrier pigeons in two world wars and wonders at the lack of gratitude towards these gentle creatures <laughs> and believes that humans represent the most obscene, perverted, cruel, uncivilised and lethal species ever to inhabit the planet and looks forward to the day when the inevitable asteroid slams into the earth and wipes them out, this giving nature the opportunity to start again. Amazing! What a guy! Oh my God! That is democracy in action, folks. So Mercer got stung, right? Mercer got stung. There's a bit in it where they say, look, a video, and they show the video on Panorama, and it's shocking, it's this guy being just thrashed on, on YouTube by these uh, police in Fiji, and it's horrible, and they show it on Panorama, but it, it shows you how sometimes the importance of language in politics is, because the guy lobbying Mercer says, look, there's a video out there, you may have seen it, um, uh, it's not complimentary, uh, it's a bit rough and ready, and sure, the regime isn't getting everything right, and you think, how's Mercer going to handle this? And he went, yeah, sure, uh, have you got any more coffee? <laughs> Amazing. So we'll say quite phenomenal. And then Tim Yo I mean what Mercer, when, when it emerged, the Panorama and Telegraph joint um, investigation, when it emerged, Mercer resigned the Tory whip and reported himself to the Parliamentary Standards Authorities. Which is always a very odd move, I think. Well, I've got it all in hand. I've actually taken a lead on this issue. So I'm, I'm glad you asked me because I've actually reported myself to the authorities. You don't get any credit for that anywhere else in life. Yes, I did commit the murders, but I think you'll find it was me that phoned the police. So I, I deserve a bit of credit for that. I mean, these guys could have left undiscovered for years. But it's been an amazing year, it's been an amazing month, and I hope, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have an amazing night ahead. Uh, our guest tonight is one of the biggest heavyweights uh, British politics has ever produced, so it is uh, a thrill, I'm sure. In the second half, I want to get as many questions from the audience as possible. I know sometimes it's difficult, but we'll bring the house lights up. And please don't be backward in coming forward. Clearly indicate to me, and I'll come to as many of you as you can, uh, as I can. And we'll try and keep your answers brief, and we'll, we'll try and get around as many as we can, because uh, Jack Shaw is obviously a phenomenal guest for us to have down here, and I'd like us all to be able to get the best benefit out of it. So, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you've been a marvellous uh, audience in the first half. Go to the bar, have a drink, refresh yourselves. In the time being, I've been Matt Ford. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hello, and welcome back. Hello, yes. Welcome to the uh, second half. Uh, well, as I said, I'm, I'm keen that everyone who wants to ask a question, or at least a, uh, a portion of the people that would like to ask a question, get the chance to do so. So... Uh, I know it's a bit awkward when I do it, but I'll repeat it uh, because we record it for the podcast. So when I do come to the audience, please indicate clearly. I'll try, try and take a good cross-section of men and women from across the room. Please don't be offended if I don't come to you because I know that tonight's guest is probably the one that most people would like to uh, ask a question of this entire run. Uh, we've had some phenomenal guests down here. Uh, George Galloway, Nigel Farage, Charles Clark, Lembert Opic and Tim Lawton. Who Tim Lawton last month, was anyone here for Tim Lawton? Tim Lawton's a, a Eurosceptic uh, Conservative MP who served as a minister in the coalition is also against gay marriage. Uh, and he's still my favourite answer of any of the shows we've had so far. When I asked him at the start of the last show what was the difference between him and UKIP, he said, it's very simple. I don't wear fucking cardigans. <laughs> Which I just thought was absolutely magic. <laughs> so... Hopefully we'll get some right to, uh, a similar uh, answer out of Jack Straw. Um, 
Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, uh, it's just phenomenal to, to, to welcome Jack Straw to this uh, show. His book is out, Last Man Standing, Memoirs of a Political Survivor. Uh, there will be copies available afterwards if you'd like to uh, buy one and get it signed. Um, he's a man who no, needs no introduction, really, but holds the record along with uh, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling as the only, uh, one of only three men to hold office throughout the entire period, to, to hold cabinet throughout the entire period of New Labour's time in office from 1997 uh, to 2010. So there's Education Secretary, Home Secretary, Justice Secretary and Foreign Secretary. An incredible career. Please welcome to the stage the one and only Mr Jack Straw. Jack, welcome to the political party. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming down. Um, I, I thought I'd start by asking you about lobbying, because it's yeah. something that a lot of people are concerned about at the moment. It's something that is getting a lot of coverage in the political media. Uh, is it something that you think needs reform? Is it occasionally unethical? Yes. Uh, it, I mean, uh, yes, it's occasionally unethical, and yes, it needs reform. Um, I mean, lobbying is, a, is a, a fa as you were uh, describing that, is a fancy name for what for many people is simply a democratic right. I'm, I'm lobbied every day of the year uh, by people, typically by people or organisations in my constituency, saying, will I do this, will I, will I do that? Uh, I had a lengthy letter from the British Wall Coverings uh, Association, <laughs> uh, which uh, may cause a laugh here, but I'll, and I'll take your names and tell them. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's the old autocrat in you, Jack. Yeah, You're I not know. at the Home Office now, mate. No, I know. <laughs> but, but you never know. You know this, this prism thing might, might be operating here in St James's Theatre. <laughs> uh, and, and you guys think that's a joke. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, the British Wall Coverings Federation, which I confess even I had not heard of, uh, <laughs> but in the budget, the ceramics industry was given uh, a, a benefit as a result of lobbying, let me say, um, f uh, in, in terms of uh, the, cl the climate change levy. And so they were arguing uh, that the wool coverings uh, industry should be given a s similar benefit. Now, why was I be written to? Because this is a little-known fact, but very important, that the biggest wallpaper manufacturer in the country, Graham and Brown, is based in Blackburn, uh, centre of the world. And so that's perfectly legitimate. By the way, I, m I met a genuine... Blackburn Rovers supporter on the tube uh, uh, today, I, I want you all to know. Um, <laughs> so there are, there are two of us. Um, <laughs> um, so lobbying takes place, but, it, but uh, I mean you, you, you sent, sent up the, the so-called uh, industry. can sometimes actually add value to what a, a, a company or a charity is trying to do. Often it, it doesn't. Uh, there ought to be a proper register of uh, lobbyists. Uh, and I think they need to be more transparent. There is quite a lot, a lot more transparency than there used to be. I mean, cripes, on this, uh, you were generous enough to say that British politics, by comparison to politics abroad, almost anywhere, is clean. Also, British politics today is infinitely cleaner mm. than it used to be. Uh, I mean, in the good old days, the, what was good about them was that nobody knew what MPs were up to, uh, <laughs> nor what they were trousering. And... and, and being absolutely serious, if you, if you read Michael Philip Ziegler's um, rather caustic biography of Ted Heath, um, he, you can see that, by the way, Ziegler starts off liking Ted Heath, but then ends up 
by thinking, God, who is this guy? Um, a very interesting biography. But Heath was taking money off the Chinese government. But he, and he always refused to declare any of his interests, even though he stayed in the House of Commons to virtually he finished. But he took a lot of money off the Chinese government. Roy Jenkins, who wrote a very sympathetic, sympathetic biography of Winston Churchill, brings out the fact that under the current, even the rules that applied when Jenkins was an MP, Churchill would have been drummed out of the brownies <laughs> because he was taking huge sums of money off industrialists uh, and others for favours. While Prime Minister? No, no, uh, no. Um, he made <laughs> no, he made huge, uh, he, he didn't need to uh, when he... Uh, uh, <laughs> after he became Prime Minister, uh, and it, it was, uh, but was a brilliant war leader, um, he uh, then, of course, sold his memoirs and made sure he was first out of the trap. And he, I mean, he was very clear about the fact that he was going to write the history of the first wo- of Second World War before anybody else. So he would frame it, uh, and uh, he did that, uh, and uh, and that sort of, sort of secured his reputation. No, in, in the in in the thirties, I mean, that particularly in the thirties, uh, when he was great in the wilderness, um, and he made a lot of money, had a lot of money out of journalism, but a lot of money out of just money, you know, making make from business people, uh, and he was always quite hard up, but he, he would have had to declare that stuff, and there would have been terrible rumpers, and a very talented talented man may have been chucked out uh, before he had, had an opportunity to serve the country. In terms of party funding and, and party yeah. donations, this is something that has been a problem in politics as long as I've been alive. Uh, and cash for questions was a major issue in terms of sleeves, yeah. but then you know, the, the people who funded the Tory party, and then uh, obviously after Tony Blair became Prime Minister, Bernie Eccleston and that yeah. whole affair, and then union funding, and now taking shares, uh, you know, the donations instead of loans instead of donations yeah. that we went yeah. under. <coughs> um, do we need to bring in state funding to tidy up party funding? Well, uh, it would... It would be handy uh, because it would save the parties an awful lot of trouble, um, and it is a terrible business trying to, to raise money. My, I mean, I've, I'm sorry to t- tell you that um, I'm one of the world's experts on the political parties' elections and referendums, because <laughs> 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 uh, it's one of the many uh, pieces of legislation that I introduced when I was Home Secretary. Um, the uh, there was a, a suggestion subsequent to that. Uh, I was just going to make the observation, rather like freedom of information, although both are necessary, the increased transparency, Mm. far from increasing trust in politicians and uh, public authorities, is reduced trust. Uh, And that's a really... Because the whole argument, I mean, apart from the fact people ought to know, of course, they ought to know, the the additional argument was that this would increase trust. I say it's gone uh, the other way. Uh, And and there was a degree to which the public wanted to be part of a conspiracy, but they actually didn't really want to know. They wanted pretend they knew, but they didn't. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. But there was a, a group which was called the Power Committee, uh, chaired by Helena Kennedy, which came up with what I thought was a very neat proposal, which is that you should have partial party funding, and uh, with your ballot paper, you're able to tick a box, uh, and if you tick that box, then the party of, of your choice, um, or which would be the party you voted for, you weren't able to <laughs> pick and mix, uh, uh, would get two quid or three quid. Uh, I thought that was a really clever idea. There's already quite a lot of uns- unseen party funding, with like, like the free post and all that stuff. 
Um, and I tried to get it through uh, my colleagues, but they were uh, against it. But I think it, that would make a big difference. Have you ever had to, I mean, obviously in your local party you'll do fundraising events like all MPs do. Were you ever sort of wheeled out by Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or any party leader to attend big fundraising events with high-value donors? Yeah, yeah, sure. And what are they like? Um, well, some of them absolutely fine, and some of them are, you know, if, if you're someone who's made lots of money and has a spare half a million or a million, um, they may uh, think that they should are entitled to something for it. I mean, that, that's, that's the problem. Um, and uh, so you have to be rather careful in saying, yes, we'd like your money, but I'm sorry, we can't give you any guarantee that anything else uh, will go with this. Um, it's... I mean, in this, there are plenty of things wrong with the states. I mean, like huge things wrong with, with the system of, of party funding uh, in, in the US, not the least of which is that there are no limits. Mm. Uh, and so, I mean, politicians really are bought and sold, and there is no better or worse practitioner of that than the um, American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, which, I mean, just outrageously not only buys politicians, but also dispatches them if they dare to speak out against Israel and in favour of the Palestinians. But what I was going to say is that the one of the good things about American culture is that people are not ashamed either to ask for money for causes, mm. whether they're political causes or charitable causes, nor to give it. And there's a great reticence uh, in uh, um, amongst Brits on this. And so I think all the political parties find that, that they find it much easier to get donations which are just below the disclosable limits, yeah. you know, which is... Well, that's the way the, yeah. the rules are always going to operate. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think it's harder for Labour people to get involved in this sort of thing? There's, uh, it's, it strikes me that Labour Prime Ministers have always had a harsher time in the press. Oh. You know, the, the treatment that Tony Blair got, I thought, was disgraceful, really, yeah. given he was just trying to raise money in a legal way for, for party donations, in a way that Tory Prime Ministers, when there was a clear link between a donation and a seat in the Lords, for instance, particularly for people who'd worked in the media, was clear. It, it, it's always harder for Labour, it, isn't it? It is much harder for Labour, I think. Um, and... Part, part of what was going on, there, there was huge envy and jealousy of Tony Blair because he, he was, he, I mean, he took the Labour Party from a situation in the early 90s where I think we probably might as well have won the election had John Smith stayed as leader, but, but we would have you know, won it and then we would have come out and, and it would have been our turn, but the natural order of things where the Tories were always in power and every so often they, they lent us government. Uh, would, well, that's how, that's how they looked at it, didn't they? And that's what I was sort of... That taught at school. Uh, that, that, that's how it worked. Um, and if you think about what had happened post-war, that's exactly what happened. Um, so um, he, he broke that um, and made the party and his, his idea of the party ascendant. And so, I mean, to begin with, there was a sort of love affair between him and the, and the papers, but that quickly wore off once we were in government. I mean, very quickly. Um, and so then people, they, they, th they thought it was all good sport. And once... Uh, Iraq had happened, uh, then he was really put under, I, I, th I think. I mean, uh, fair enough for people to question him or me about Iraq because we were responsible for it. But then to have a, a pop at his family uh, and these other things where what he was trying, simply trying to do was to raise money uh, for a political party. And here's the rub here, uh, which is people want to live in a democratic country. Uh, they want the benefits that go with political parties because you can't run a democracy without political parties. You, you, there's the stronger the party system, the stronger your democracy is likely uh, to be. But it's got to be paid for. Uh, and you can either pay for it by the state, which has quite a lot of problems associated with it, if it's full state funding, or you have to ask individual inst in an institution to pay for it. There's no other way of doing it. And 
the easiest way to raise money is to get it out of high-value donors, because it just, it's just quicker, yeah. and we've all got other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, I know. <laughs> in terms of trust in politics, it's, you know, it's always been the case that every year people's trust in politicians has always been at its lowest, and every new revelation, every new story further chips away at it, and we're always told that you know, it's hit a new low. How on earth do we... I mean, it does feel like it's at a particular low at the moment. How on earth do those you know, politicians like yourself and people in this room that are interested in politics repair trust in it? Uh, well, with difficulty, first of all. Um, <laughs> but but it, I mean, it was ever thus, and it's really interesting that if you... Uh, and uh, Indeed, I happen to mention this in the book, should you wish to purchase it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, at least I think I do. Uh, or, or I should have done. <laughs> um, but... Just it stick a new forward in it, mate, and it release it as a new edition next in year. In, um, <laughs> in, in 1944, when the war had turned and things were getting better for, for us, Gallup, Gallup, the Gallup poll uh, polled the uh, British public about their, their view of politicians, and a large majority thought the politicians were useless and hopeless. I mean, that was in, in the war when everybody was on the same side. I, I think the... It, I mean, it is depressing, and the things... You know, Patrick Mercer, uh, Tim Yeo, the two <laughs> Labour peers. Yeah. Uh, it looks very, very grabby, and it, you, you just cringe when you see this stuff. And, and, and you, th- you know, it's just further evidence, apparently, that people think we're all on the take, which we're not. I think the the the, the most important way that you, you break it down is by a personal contact. All the evidence shows, without any question, is that whilst uh, the public may distrust politicians in general and I understand why, they don't distrust the politicians they know. So, it, I mean, not only in my own constituency, but in other circumstances, uh, I've placed a very high premium on you know, doing stand-up meetings in the town centre, on a soapbox, mm. doing residence meetings, just meeting people. And, I mean, lots and lots of cephalo- cephalogical uh, evidence which shows still that you can... Of course, you've got to send out leaflets, you've got to send out personal like letter, personalised letters, you've got to tweet, you've got to use Facebook and all this other stuff. But if you want to persuade people, uh, the, the dividends you get from actually knocking on somebody's door and saying, Mr. Miss Smith, would you please vote f- for the party and this is why and who I am, are, are fantastic. Have you ever had, when you look at that, that Mercer sting and what's going on with Tim Yeo and the people, you know, they're always people, it seems, trying to catch politicians out. Have you ever been in this situation where an undercover reporter's tried to get you, do you think? How can I tell? <laughs> if you think about it, I mean, we have to wait till next Sunday, I guess. <laughs> uh, if you think about it, I mean, not so far, uh, uh, but I don't, and I don't think so. Um, but I mean, look, if if you've been in uh, cabinet uh, and stuff, uh, and people think you know the ropes, of course, uh, you'll get people coming to you to to ask you to uh, do things for them and to take fees for them. There's nothing nothing wrong with uh, with that at all, provided you stick to the rules very, very clearly. Uh, and frankly, I mean, I, what surprises me is how anybody can be enticed to go and have lunch with total strangers uh, who, who, you know, who's not done any, not found out any of these organisations are, not spoken to anybody who knows them, because if they'd just asked that question, um, then they would have discovered nobody knew them because it was all a scam. Um, um, free lunch, though, eh? <laughs> <laughs> a, 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 a free lunch. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's the other thing. I mean, you know, ad- advice to uh, MPs is, uh, on the whole, stay in the tea room because <laughs> um, d- you'll do better. I mean, seriously, why, d- why do you want to keep going to lunch with? Them? You can have them in and talk to them, but why go to lunch w- with people? 
Um, I guess, I mean, the other thing is, I, I, before I came into the House for a couple of years, I worked for World in Action, which was a mm. actually far better. I mean, Panorama's not bad, but World in Action was, mu <laughs> <laughs> was much, much better. Um, so I it was introduced to the techniques of um, uh, microphones down your trousers and, <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> I stopped. I stopped now. <laughs> it just begs the question: Who on earth you were trying to bug with a uh, microphone down your trousers? <laughs> All those midget politicians that were knocking around in the seventies. <laughs> it was in case I took my shirt off. <laughs> um, at the start of your book. <laughs> At the start of the book, I, I love the first time you book, you say, I love politics. Uh, and I think it's, it's so important to understand why people get into it and why, you know, I got into it at a very young age, and I know a lot of people that do find it intensely stimulating as an idea. While so, you know, arguably the vast majority of people find politics so boring, what is it that attracts some of us to it? What was it that attracted you to it? Well, it, it was my family um, in the widest sense, and seeing that. Uh, it sound, may sound a bit pompous, but it's, but it's true. Seeing that it was through politics, you could put ideas about how to change society into practice. So uh, the, the most in inspirational uh, person in my childhood was my granddad, who was, um, I mean, a really, really bright guy, um, but who, whose uh, educational opportunities had been stopped at the age of 13 when he had to leave school. He then managed to survive four years. In, uh, in France and in, and, and in uh, Egypt, at the front. I mean, just extraordinary. And one of these so-called lucky people, uh, he got very bad claustrophobia, just had his toe shot off, but, but that was all. Um, and uh, then went worked as a night mechanic on the buses all his life until he died prematurely at the age of 59. But he was one of the sort of aristocrats of the trade union movement, uh, and a lay ally of Ernie Bevin. Fantastic guy. And he, I mean, he died when I was nine, but I come from uh, Essex, and by the way, I don't apologise uh, 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 for that. If there's anybody else here from Essex, because yeah. good, because it's God's own county, uh, 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 and I, I've come from the uh, I went come from the areas that, that are most prominent in Towie, I'm afraid to say, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's all true. Let me tell you, it's absolutely all true. Uh, Do you ever watch it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> What? Do you like it? Or yeah, of course, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you go down that now, I road, you'll see all these birds, uh, uh, <laughs> bo bo bottle blondes uh, in Chelsea tractors, and I'm not joking, mate. They are—they've <laughs> got mirrors on the screens of their mobiles and they can both send a text and do their lipstick at the same time. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I don't go into that. Yeah, but, but we, we lived on the edge of Epping Forest and the reason Epping, Epping Forest, which is a fantastic national park, is there is because agricultural labourers, of whom my forebears were, were, were one, played a, a, a part in this, fought the lords of the manor who, who were enclosing the whole of Epping Forest but in stealing the land. Uh, and they would, uh, and th they started legal action against the Lords of the Manor in the mid 19th century, uh, and they didn't have any money. Uh, but then, some rich Quaker bankers who also lived in the area decided they wanted to have a pop at the Tory squirearchy as well, and they financed uh, this legal action. And after about three years, they won, uh, which is the reason you've got um, Epping Forest. It's an astonishing story. My grandfather used to keep me spellbound about that. So that was one part of it. 
The other part of it was my father, who in many other ways was a very difficult man, and my, ma my parents' marriage broke up in quite violent circumstances when I was 10. But he had refused to fight in the Second World War, and he was jailed. Uh, and so he spent a significant early part of the war in prison, uh, and then was put to work on the land with Italian prisoners of war. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, he was... I, if, would, I, would I have made the same decision? I don't think I probably would have done. But do I greatly respect the fact that he made that decision uh, and was socially isolated for it and treated as a bit of a prior uh, all the rest of his life? Yes, I do. And it was, uh, but if, if your father has gone to prison for his politics, and I'll tell you a very funny story about that in a second, um, then that also sticks in your brain. So that, and then I got involved in, in you know, sending out, dishing out leaflets and stuff and, and uh, discovered that I quite liked... Uh, politics, but it was in my blood. So what age was that when you started leafletting? And stuff? Well, I went, I, I, the first time I, I took numbers uh, on a polling station uh, was in, can I, can I this the 1955 general election uh, when I was eight. Um, <laughs> uh, we lost. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the 1959 election, um, I, I, uh, I, 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 I don't mention that. I, I was uh, s sent out um, delivering leaflets, and it was raining, uh, and I traipsed around this council estate we lived on, um, delivering these leaflets. And I sheltered in a shop doorway. This was in late sep no, mid September '59. Read the leaflet, and it was about this chap who wanted to be the, lab the Labour MP for Epping and Ongo, which is a bit of a uh, a tall order. But anyway, he wanted to be an MP, and I read all this, and I thought, Christ, this sounds really, really interesting. And this seems a far better way of serving the Labour Party than delivering leaflets <laughs> with, a, <laughs> with a rain going down your back. So that was when I really thought, and I remember coming back, looking at what the flats we lived in, thinking that I'd, I'd like to do that. Um, uh, so um, that was when the idea was put in my brain, and then, you know, as you do at school, you go through other ideas of what you might like to do. But when I went, I was very argumentative, and when I went to Leeds University, I discovered that I was quite good at, uh, at both debating but also kind of uh, the administrative side of politics and one thing led to another. So it must have been, you, you had a phenomenal career in politics, it, it, it still bothers me that you didn't stand for the Labour Party leadership, okay. particularly in 2010 because it felt like the Tory party always has these big sort of forks in the road where you have Ken Clark against Ian Duncan Smith and everyone understands what that means and it felt like in, in 2010 almost the tide went out and we were left with none of the big players from the Blair-Brown era, we were left with you know, a, a new generation of people. Why didn't you stand for that leadership? Uh, oh, for a very straightforward reason. I was tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's a bit, but I, I, I didn't understand. When I used to read, I read a lot of accounts of what happened to the, particularly to the 45 to 51 Labour government, and they got tired. Why did Attlee call a general election in 51 when he didn't have to? He could have, could have carried on. Uh, you had the numbers. I mean, just but they had sufficient numbers. They were just exhausted. Yeah. Uh, and, OK, they'd been through the war, and we hadn't. But thir 13 years in government. I'd been 10 years in the Shadow Cabinet before that, and seven years before that as a junior frontbencher. Um, and I needed a, needed a rest. I mean, that's, that's the reason. Uh, and I think that was true of the rest of my generation. Um, so that, that's, that's why. And, yes, of course, you know, we all think we could do better than... The, exi the, 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 the existing lot, but excuse me, um, uh, but um, that, I mean, that, and and also I, I think there was a kind of a zeitgeist in the party uh, that he wanted to move on to somebody, an, an, a younger generation. Um, although as I keep telling um, Ed Miliband, he'll uh, 
be my age one day, or at least, or at least I hope so. <laughs> there, was, there was actually, uh, uh, as Maurice Chevalier famously said when he was asked what it felt like to be 80, he said, well, he said it was better than the alternative. And in private, they'd say, can be very, very witty. Um, and... Uh, in, in cabinet, um, we had um, the, the fellow who invented the uh, internet. What's he called? Uh, Berners-Lee. Berners-Lee. Tim Berners-Lee turned up. Gordon used to suddenly produce these. People. We'd be look, look, look at the look at the agenda for cabinet. It would you know, be parliamentary affairs and foreign affairs and things like that, public spending. And then Gordon would kind of somebody would be sitting there who obviously wasn't a member of the cabinet, and uh, <laughs> we look around and make sure your neighbour hadn't been sacked. Uh, <laughs> And there's someone you dimly recognise it. In this case, it was Tim Berners-Lee. Anyway, so he gave us a little presentation. Um, and um, because uh, I was a kind of senior old fogey in the cabinet, after he'd uh, given this uh, presentation, Gordon turned to me to say something useful. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so I, I said something that had been useful, saying something completely banal uh, uh, and slightly starstruck and said that, it was extraordinary sitting in the room with the man who invented the internet. I mean, it is like you know, sitting in the room with the man who invented printing. Uh, and, and I, but I then said, in the, it was extraordinary to be sitting in the room with the man who invented the internet. Uh, and it must have been like uh, meeting the man who invented uh, the wheel, uh, at which Ed Miliband, just like that, said, and what was he like, Jack? LAUGHTER <laughs> That was very funny. It was very funny, yeah. It was genuinely funny. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of him as a, as a leader, Edmund Lang? Compared to the, you know, you've worked under so many Labour leaders and are very closely with some of them. How do you rate him in that sort of great pantheon of Labour leaders? In about the middle uh, is the answer. Uh, well, I mean, I do, I, I promise you, if you, th- if you think about the Labour leaders I've seen. Uh, <laughs> um, and I also, also I mean, look, I didn't vote for Ed. I voted for his brother. Uh, and it wasn't because I had any personal things about uh, Ed Miliband uh, at all. I th- but I thought he wasn't ready for it. And indeed, I told him that. Um, I think, I mean, being serious about this, I think that he, the, the experience of E. Miliband has been much better than I think most of us who voted for his brother uh, ex- uh, anticipated. Um, it is the worst, I mean, David Cameron used to say this, the worst job in British politics, by some way, yeah. uh, is being leader of the opposition, by a big margin. And th- that was also another, I think, reason why I quickly dismissed the idea of standing for the leader of the, of, of, of the <laughs> Labour Party. I mean, I, let me, I, if someone had said to me, Jack, Gordon's gone, you can be Prime Minister, sign on the dotted line. <laughs> 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 I would have been fine. <laughs> uh, absolutely fine. But... but but um, you know, I spent 18 years in opposition. Did I want another? So, uh, and so I, it, it is a grind that job. Um, some of the things I think he's done uh, brilliantly. I mean, it was Ed Miliband who had the guts, which some of us had not had, to take on the Murdoch press. I mean, people forget this. this was two years ago um, that he then manoeuvred Cameron into not not establishing some committee of the good and the great, but getting in a very forensic, skilled senior judge to hold the Leveson inquiry and that has changed the, the face of the media and, it's, and it really has uh, and the balance of power 
between um, the, the public uh, and the media. <coughs> and that was down uh, to him. I mean, j literally was down to him. You know, other things, we're living with this, um, the, the myth-making of the Conservative Party uh, that we ru ruined the country, which, which deeply frustrates me. And it, it, I mean, if you're, it's taken him, I think, at both heads, some time to get into their stride about how we deal with that. I think we are now uh, getting into that stride by a combination of saying, yes, it's, it, you know, things are going to be difficult, and no, we can't say we're going to um, reinstate this, this benefit or that benefit or that. We're going to have to make an assessment of what to do in 2015. At the same time, resolutely uh, denying that uh, the country was in a shambles or we had bankrupted it over that 13 years because it's simply not true. Um, and up until 2008, the financial crash, the Conservatives were not saying to us, uh, spend less. In, in constituency level, they were saying, spend more. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not just in my patch, but in David Cameron's patch, every other patch. They were saying, uh, we want a, new, a further new hospital. We don't want this post office closed. All this stuff. They were calling for more public spending. And the, the level of, of, of our debt, national debt, was about the same as, as other countries. The, the financial crisis was caused by the financial institutions. We copped it uh, because our economy is more reliant on, on the financial institutions. Anyway, um, but I say Ed, Ed Miliband and Ed Balls have taken a bit of time to get into their stride on that, but I think they are now doing so. <coughs> on, on, on the economic downturn, and obviously the, the Tories ideologically have always been for deregulation, but uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair single-mindedly made the city of London the financial centre of the world, and that was a stated aim, and that was something that uh, not only did they believe it to be good for the economy, but sort of a, a benefit in, a, in a of itself for the prestige of it. The, the fact that our economy was unduly affected by it was as a result of Labour economic policy, though, wasn't it? It was partly, partly that. Yeah, I think we, we were um, uh, mesmerised by um, the City of London. I mean, there are quite uh, understandable reasons for it, and I also just make a, a, an important partisan point, which is that the Conservatives at that time, including Cameron, were calling for less regulation, yeah. not more regulation. They now, I mean, yes, okay, we were responsible for the fact we, we weren't regulating sufficiently, but they, were, they had helped to create a climate uh, where they were calling for, for, for less. And indeed, a committee which Cameron endorsed, which John Redwood had chaired, had called for almost complete deregulation, save the mortgage market, which would have been a, a catastrophe. Now, I mean, I, I was concerned, and I, I voiced this um, at the time, but perhaps not enough, uh, at, at the fact that we, I mean, two linked things we were not sufficiently concerned about the balance of trade, which Labour, Labour used to be concerned yeah. about, but, but wasn't. On the, and uh, coupled with that, we, and directly associated with it, we weren't sufficiently concerned about uh, manufacturing and, and, and its share. I mean, manufacturing has declined as a proportion of GDP of all Western economies, uh, but we should have done more uh, to stabilise that decline. How hard was it during the, the Blair era and the Brown era uh, to have your voice heard as a, a, as a senior cabinet minister or as any cabinet minister? Because there's a, there's a prevailing view, isn't there, that the, the cabinet system of government effectively evaporated mm. under Tony Blair and was replaced by this sofa-style government. Is that true? And, and if it is, is that necessarily a bad thing? Um, it's, it's a, well, it, it is certainly the case that Tony preferred informal styles of government. Uh, he'd picked that style up from Margaret Thatcher, um, but he... he actually developed it, it, it even more. So Cabinet shifted from being a effectively a decision-making body, except on occasions, to being a body where uh, members of the Cabinet were briefed uh, about things, and for sure there were lively discussions. 
but there weren't decisions taken on papers. Um, I didn't agree with that, uh, and I, it, I leave this chapter at the end of my book about that. Um, and the ir irony uh, of this is that Tony would not have lost if he'd been willing to accept more formal procedures. I mean, he, like me, he's a lawyer. One of the things that lawyers are, uh, are taught is, is the vital importance of procedure. I mean, I remember when I was, was a, a, a doing my bar finals 40 years ago, uh, the lecturer on civil procedure saying, you may think this is a totally dry as dust uh, subject, and to a degree it is, but this is a means by which people are able to access their rights. Mm -hmm. So never mind about substantive rights, how you get hold of your rights. And procedure in government is about how people exercise power. So it's really important. Um, and it, it's also the means not only by which you exercise power, but by which you legitimise decisions. Uh, and Tony, very bright guy, in my view, great Prime Minister, um, he, he he didn't get that, um, and his reputation has unnecessarily suffered, partly as a result. So I think we have got to formalise uh, the way that government operates and actually prescribe it much more. Uh, one of the, you know, the, arguably the defining moment of, of New Labour's time in office was the Iraq mm. War, and that was a, a period where you know, some former members of the cabinet that you sat in have said that they didn't feel they were consulted uh, properly enough, you know, that the parliament was given a vote, but the cabinet didn't really, wasn't allowed to have its say on Iraq. Is that true? It, I understand why they're saying it. Um, I mean, it's not correct. There were, as it happens, I'm about to know the answer, there were 23 uh, cabinet meetings where uh, Iraq was discussed. And the fact uh, that um, Robin Cook and I had persuaded Bounce Tony into the imperative of having a resolution of the House of Commons in public on a substantive motion, uh, if we were going to take military action, then changed the nature of decision-making inside government because uh, everybody knew that that was bound to happen. So that there was an, Im an immense amount of discussion in government and with, with Parliament, not only on the floor of the House but in committees and, for example, in, in meetings of the Parliamentary uh, Party. However, if you go back to my earlier point, if there had been um, an operating... Uh, well, it wouldn't have been... Well, we weren't, uh, I was going to say war cabinet, but... Um, National Security Council, which, to his credit, David Cameron uh, has established, uh, where you the, 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 the papers that people like Tony Blair, Jeff Hoon and I were seeing mm. day by day were in synopsis, uh, in, in abbreviated form, uh, submitted to the National Security Council, then went through them on papers, and then those decisions were reported to Cabinet. That I'm absolutely convinced that the decisions would have been the same, but the whole process would have been much more legitimate, uh, and that's where Tony lost out. Uh, there's a, a line in your book where you say, at the start of the chapter on Iraq, I could have prevented the United Kingdom's involvement in the Iraq war, I did not do so. Is there ever a day when you regret that? There's never a day when I don't think about it, um, and I mean, given what later come out, came out, um, d I mean, on some days when you hear of, of lots of... Uh, bombings in Baghdad, and it, it, was a, it went down and down and down, and it started to erupt again. Of course I think about my responsibility uh, for that. I don't think you'd be a human being if, if you didn't. Um, and think, well, you know, would it, it would have been nice if we could have avoided that. Um, what I've tried to do in the book, and indeed in evidence to inquiries like the Chilcot Inquiry, is uh, to explain why you know, people like me, uh, why I, hopefully reasonably sane and thoughtful, came to the decision I did uh, in favour of military action. Um, and it, to explain what it felt like 
and, and how I, what my thought processes were prospectively. And as I say in the book, I mean, of course, for sure, if we'd known then what we subsequently knew, which was that uh, Saddam's uh, insinuation, uh, which, which is what it was, that he had uh, great holdings of uh, chemical and biological uh, weapons, and he was a very, uh, running a very strong military, mm. that that was complete nonsense. If, if we'd known then what we, we, we discovered, of course there would be, have been no case for war. Um, uh, there would have been other consequences, which we would have had to live with Saddam, and you know, who knows what subsequent would have happened, but there wouldn't have been a case for war. There wouldn't have been a war in which we could have invo- been involved in. But the truth was, we didn't know that. Uh, and in my judgment, we, c- we couldn't have known it. Uh, so what we thought we were dealing with, and so did the whole of the Security Council, mm. was a threat to international peace and security. It's interesting that the documentary says, I don't know if people have seen it, the Iraq war on the BBC, because I was, I was a supporter of the Iraq war at the time and still am for the reasons that you outlined, and, and re- remember very clearly the years intervening where weapons inspectors weren't allowed in, he was messing around the international community, various UN resolutions yeah. passed, all of them breached by Saddam's regime, Resolution 1441, the French coming out and saying no matter what the second resolution mm-hmm. says, we will have to vote it down, which effectively you know, was a stupid tactic on behalf of Chirac. But there's a bit on this documentary where one of Saddam Hussein's right-hand men admits on this BBC documentary, oh, we had weapons and we hid them from UN weapons inspectors. Now, how anyone, I fully understand that people were for or against the war, wouldn't start thinking, well, actually, you know, when you remember what Saddam Hussein's regime was like, you remember the way that he behaved. In my view, it's inevitable. It doesn't excuse it if the decision was wrong. But do do you find it frustrating that effectively so many of the public either don't remember that or didn't take it in at the time? Yeah, well, I mean, what's frustrating about it is is that, of course, people are fully entitled to take a different view. And again, as I bring out in my book, my fantastically loyal family, my wife and children, uh, who came to the House of Commons and sat in the gallery to listen, (coughs) listen to me wind up the debate, were themselves opposed to the military action. Um, so we have great spirited debates at home, and, and uh, so f- absolutely entitled to take that view as the people were who were went on the great demonstration um, in the middle of February. What I, what I regret is that there's a sort of mythology has developed that Tony, particularly, uh, I mean, and especially, it's been focused on him rather than someone like me, uh, had made it all up uh, that, that Saddam never had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and he just did it in order to brown nose uh, George Bush. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's sort of trivialising decision making, uh, and uh, I mean demeaning this country and our institutions as well as somebody who I th- thought was a good uh, prime minister. And the, you know, I used to recite this to people. The truth was that Saddam had launched missiles at five of his neighbours. He had invaded two of them. I mean, wreaked phenomenal destruction against the Iranians and important destruction against uh, the Kuwaitis. He gassed his own people. Uh, I mean, he developed a very extensive chemical and biological weapon system. He kept that from the UN inspectors. It wasn't until his son-in-law defected that that came out, and the son-in-law then paid for his defection with his life. He'd also got a, a beginnings of a nuclear weapons uh, program. And one of the things that made me decide uh, in the lead-up in, in, in March 2003, ten years ago, to support the war um, was when I read on the plane to the final Security Council meeting this 170-page document that Hans Blix's uh, office had produced on 29 un- unanswered t- uh, chapters or uh, uh, 29 un- unanswered questions about uh, uh, Saddam's chemical and biological <coughs> weapons program. 
and in 29 separate sections going through sarin, anthrax and so on, the weapons inspectors have said, this is what we know he had, this is what we know he's got rid of, and where the devil's the rest. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons I do not regard Hans Blix as a hero at all, but frankly as a charlatan, uh, is because I went to see him on the 6th of September with, and this is recorded, official documents, with a private secretary and Jeremy Greenstock, UN, uh, UK's UN ambassador. And I said to him, Hans, I've just come off the plane and I've read the whole of this document on the plane. It is a pretty horrifying indictment, is it not, of the Iraqi regime. And he turned to me, he said, oh, you've read it, Jack, have you? That's more than I've done. And I said to him, what? And this was a weapons inspector on the day before this crucial debate, who'd not, was so insouciant, he'd not read his own document. Uh, and I've got a different view on it now, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I was there, that's what he, what he said. He also, as I record in the book, uh, <laughs> even in 2004, was saying he thought Saddam did have all these yeah, weapons. Yeah. He said that, so he's changed his mind since then. And the other thing was, we were trying to get a second resolution, and s there were part of the second resolution was it, there were six benchmark tests set for uh, the Saddam regime, which were, th were dead easy things for them to, to comply with, like allowing the scientists to be interviewed outside Iraq and things like that. Know where those came from? They were written down on a piece of paper by Hans Blix in the margins of a Security Council meeting and handed to me. They were his ideas. Um, anyway, you won't, if you hear, hear him lecture on this, he won't tell you that. <laughs> it's another, in your book, it's another UN weapons inspector, though, and uh, one that sadly lost his life, that you say presents you with the most... Yeah. And in fact, the most compelling case, yeah. and that was David Kelly. He was, David Kelly had been to, uh, he'd been a weapons inspector, um, and I think he was a, a microbiologist. Anyway, he knew his stuff. I did uh, an evidence session before the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee of the Commons in the, the, on the day before Parliament was recalled in, in late September 2002 to discuss the famous dossier. And I'd not met David Kelly before, but I was introduced... Uh, to him and we had a long briefing session beforehand and he made absolutely clear, he was, down on, he was also on the record of this, that he, th he thought uh, that uh, Saddam had all this stuff uh, and uh, did pose a threat and he was absolutely explicit and he was explicit subsequently in writing uh, in public that he thought we might have to take military action against uh, Saddam. That was a terrible tragedy, the guy died uh, or killed himself. Awful. Um, but that was his view and I think it was his view to, till the end of his life. I don't like to sort of raise conspiracy theories, but it was it was an unfortunate timing of his death, wasn't it? And there are people out there that think, well, it all looked a little bit fishy. I oh, was I never one of them, yeah. but you know, it was some people. Do, I mean, it sounds like people in this room think that you know, there's a possibility that it was, you know, silenced by the government. I mean, in terms of the, you, the things that go on in the world and yeah. espionage and everything else, that's highly unlikely, isn't it? Uh, uh, it's not highly unlikely. It, it, it is it is inconceivable. Um, no, Straw says it's highly unlikely. I think it would not be quite the headline. The British government and its agencies does not get up to that kind of stuff, all right? Well, I'll, I'll 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 <laughs> no, I mean, certainly other countries do, but we don't. I promise you. I, I, I feel totally secure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when... To the Iraq process, dealing with the, the uh, Americans is interesting in the book because they were trying to make a link, particularly Dick Cheney, it sounds like, from what you say, and obviously they were doing it publicly, to try and link Iraq to Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Um, you got on very well with Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. Yes. Um, 
What was it like dealing with people like Dick Cheney? Uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, very. I mean, he didn't trust me. And I mean, I, I, I mean, in, in a sort of political sense, and I didn't. We didn't appreciate each other. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and there was one occasion where I, when I went to over to Washington, I used to go and see him. You know, and um, so I go into the West Wing and uh, go and see him. It was perfectly formal. But on one occasion, I, I, I was talking to him, and he said, "This is confidential, Mr. Secretary." And I thought, for Pete's sake, I've met you know, I've, I've met you for two years. Um, of course, it's confidential. Why are you telling me this for? I mean, it's probably because I was president of the National Union of Students. He just read it, read it on a CIA brief or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, but 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 I mean, also, he, he, we used to have these video uh, conferences, um, and he was always somewhere else, and he and he was always silent. Uh, and then we knew, we knew that he'd go around the back door, uh, and and brief, uh, try and persuade President Bush of his viewpoint. So I mean, this, this comes out very uh, strongly, not, not only in what uh, Colin Powell has, has recorded, uh, but also, and it was quite, quite a surprise to me, Condoleezza Rice's book is incredibly critical, although she was very, she's very loyal to, to, to George Bush and sticks to him like a limpet. She, and, and she was very, I mean, whereas Colin Powell used to um, get on the phone to me and would... Uh, Use the most astonishingly fruity uh, <laughs> soldier's language uh, <laughs> uh, about his colleagues. Um, Connolly was very straight, but in in the book uh, she's not. Uh, I, mean she, I mean, very straight laced. In the book, uh, she unburdens herself. Now, uh, one, I mean, everything in the book that you know, when I quote Colin uh, uh, Powell is, I got him to to check as I was writing the book that my recollection was correct, and also he didn't that he didn't mind me saying what I, including the quotation publicly. There's a guy, if you think Dick Cheney's someone not to appreciate, you should meet a guy called John Bolton, um, who uh, was uh, ostensibly in charge of um, disarmament. He was the undersecretary in the State Department. And uh, I mean, he, a uh, very clever guy, but um, took a very uh, black and white view of uh, the world uh, and was always searching for an enemy and particularly the big, the big enemy once Iraq had happened he moved on to Iran um, and one day uh, in the Times newspaper there the headline story was a, about Americans distrust of Jay Straw who was being criticised as Tehran Jack this was only uh, not because I'd suddenly be become uh, t uh, take, uh, decided to, uh, to go on a correspondence course to become an Ayatollah um, but <laughs> because I was interested in a, in a settlement with, with the Iranians. So I w then discovered that John Bolton had been through uh, London, and I was told that the whole story had come from Bolton. So I phoned Conan and said, look, we don't come to Washington and brief against your people, so do you think you could tell Bolton not to brief uh, against me? Uh, he said, yeah, sure. He said, he, he said, yeah, it's a terrible bloke. He said, but you haven't met Jack, the two guys who work for him. So I said, no. He said, he said they're worse. And then he said, he said, you know, he said, they've got hairs coming out their knuckles uh, and they sleep upside down. It's <laughs> <laughs> about people who work for him. Have you ever, <laughs> despite being briefed against by, by perhaps uh, that particular individual, there was always a perception in, in this country was that Tony Blair's number 10 operation was so ruthless it would brief against its own ministers. Did you ever experience anything like that? No, I didn't, funnily enough. Um, I can't, I mean, no, I don't think I did, um, ever. Um, I had a, 
I, I mean, I liked Alistair Campbell, uh, despite the fact he's a Burnley uh, uh, supporter. <laughs> uh, and th there was a moment, actually, this, th th there's a natural order of things in East Lancashire, which is that Blackburn always beats Burnley. Uh, <laughs> and we have done for 37 years. So is a Burnley supporter here? No, good. Yes. One over there. <laughs> Where? Oh, right, OK, I'll see you afterwards. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, sadly, we've we maintained that record for 37 years, haven't we? <laughs> Although, sadly, sadly... They, sorry? Yeah, I thought you were going to say that, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. How do we get on to that? But anyway, uh, there was a kind of mutual respect between Campbell and me. I, I mean, uh, what you tried to, had to try to do is to do your job. Uh, I wouldn't have tolerated being briefed against, to be honest. I don't, I don't recall. I mean, occasionally you run into problems with number 10, getting excited about stuff, um, uh, and have to put them back in their box uh, <laughs> and things. Uh, but I had good special advisors who had good uh, and robust relationships uh, with, with number 10. So, but I mean, the other thing is this, don't ever brief against other people. Because mm. they're, they're in, and don't get involved in that politics. Just stay out of it. Uh, and neither of my the, the, the guy called Ed Owen, succeeded by a guy called Mark Davis, who covered the whole periodising government, would ever have dreamt against briefing against other people. Because that's that's it simply attracts um, uh, a briefing in retaliation. Uh, that that period when Tony then handed over to Gordon and. I was working with the party at the time, and it was sort of a bizarre period where we were told that Gordon Brown's first 100 days was going to be this blitz of new ideas uh, and new announcements that he had in his bottom drawer, and it's going to be amazing. It's, it's very important that no one stands against him in this leadership contest and everything. Do you think it would have been better for Gordon Brown and the Labour government if actually some people would have stood against him for the Labour leadership? Yes, I mean, in retrospect, it would have, would have been. On the other hand, I, was, I mean, I, I strangely found myself his campaign manager. I mean, I know why he asked me to be his campaign manager, and I know why I said yes. Uh, what was that? Well, <laughs> well, he asked me to be his campaign manager so that I wasn't going to st didn't stand against him. Uh, uh, why did I say yes? To guarantee myself a job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and put your hand up if you wouldn't have done the same. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to stand against him anyway, so... so uh, and I actually thought he would... I, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that at that stage, I was pretty certain he would make a very good job of things. Mm. It was great sadness to him as well as to everybody else that he, f he found actually being Prime Minister and being a decision-maker so uh, uh, difficult. Um, and the other thing was that, yes, I mean, he th he'd thought that it would be better if there wasn't a contest. And again, I mean, yes, it would have been better if there had been a contest, but I've never met anybody standing for any kind of elected office who doesn't just breathe a sigh of relief if they're elected unopposed. I mean, <laughs> cripes, if, you know, if, if I'd managed to persuade the, the uh, Liberal, Conservative, uh, National Front, UKIP, uh, and other assorted independents not to stand in Blackburn, <laughs> it'd be great. <laughs> and what would you say? No, come on, stand. <laughs> of course, it would uh, know, be absolutely terrific because you'd, you'd go and work somewhere else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, how much did the culture change between uh, Tony taking over and Gordon? A lot. I mean, th Gordon had got a lot of these ideas in his back pocket, and, and well, in front pocket, and he developed, and he, and he was ready. You know, for Yours example, full of microphones. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, in his locker, he was ready to um, and, and 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 announce this uh, to, to go for a great program of constitutional change, where, where I and I was a point man on this, um, and it was terrific. 
But then events took over, and he, because he, as it turned out, he, he lacked the facility for running teams and for uh, dealing with uh, conflicts, uh, as ministers dug in on, on, on these issues as well as many others, the thing sort of fell away. I mean, say, for example, I was giving evidence to a House of Lords Select Committee this morning about this. We had a perfectly sensible plan by which either by legislation or resolution of the House of Commons, um, it would be laid down uh, that for, for eternity, um, any Prime Minister wishing to put our troops in harm's way um, would have to go to the House of Commons to get approval. It's, it's a precedent we got established with Iraq, but that was going to be laid down. Pretty simple, straightforward. I think there's a consensus for it. Mm. There was an interdepartmental argument uh, about this with the MOD digging in. Tony, if Tony had been if brought, you know, if it'd been on Tony's watch, he would have called the meeting of ministers and said we would have sorted it out. The whole thing just kind of fell away. Um, and I mean, it's, it's also, however, fair to say that that the Gordon's government very quickly. Well, he, first of all, he knocked it off course by this extraordinary indecision in late September and early October 2007 over whether or not to call a general election. Mm. And frankly, I mean. It, I was against having a general election because I think we thought we'd lose, but it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other whether he, he'd called it or not called it because he, 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 he wouldn't have damaged himself. But Allowing the talk uh, to... Oh, it's just terrible. It was awful. And that knocked other people's confidence in him, his cabinet's confidence in him, and it knocked his, his own confidence mm. in himself. And, and in the, he never recovered. And then quite quickly after that, we had the uh, financial crisis. Uh, and I mean, his finest hour, which was really important, was sorting, sorting that out. Yeah. Uh, and the G20 in April 2009, where he did really well. Uh, but it, it was a painful period. When you saw him change, because I remember even in my short, short space in politics, sort of circa 94 to, you know, just after New Labour coming into office, he was quite funny, he had a big personality, he looked bright and driven. And then towards his end, I mean, I suppose you, you mentioned it earlier, people just get tired. But he looked so burdened by office, he looked like he just wasn't enjoying it at all. I mean, when you witnessed him in Cabinet, did he, did he, did he look almost sad? Yes, it was, I mean, it was sad, actually. Um, I mean, look, we got tired, but if, 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 if you don't... If you, it's a fantastic privilege to be a senior minister. I mean, phenomenal privilege. Um, and you have a great deal of discretion. And if you don't get up every morning thinking it's a great privilege, and, I'm, and you know, I'm, gonna try, I'm trying to do good by my lights, but I'm also there to enjoy it, yeah, and to, to be cheerful with, with, with people, um, then you ought to pack it in. Um, and, I mean, however serious the subject, you, you, you know, you, you should be, uh, as I say, uh, not burden other people as well, and, and be cheerful. But it, it, it was a burden to him, and I think that it, 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 this whole thing about the Peter Principle, you never really know whether people are capable of making decisions on their own until they are tested. And one of the things that certainly hadn't dawned on me um, was that in the Treasury at that time, any chances, because the economy was going pretty well, had just four, about four sets of major decisions to make in a year. Okay, they were important ones, but they were the budget, the public spending round, and, and a couple of other ones. Mm. And in between, you didn't really have to make many big decisions. And what, in other departments, I mean, obviously famously the Home Office, but all say transport or uh, the, the foreign office or education in different ways you're ending up with crises coming in the door all the time yeah. and you're having to handle them uh, and uh, something in the home office they used to, used to all the time um, 
and you've got to make quick decisions. And some you get right and some you get wrong, but you've just got to make a decision. It doesn't matter. And you've just got to move on. And that's what I think he found very difficult. Okay, I'll open up the uh, floor now. I can ask you to uh, let us have your name. Uh, keep the questions brief, because I'd like to get in as many as possible. And uh, Jack, if I can ask you to keep the answers relatively brief, sure. uh, so that we can get uh, as many people in as we can. Uh, there's, uh, I can't see if it's a young man or, or a lady over in the corner. <laughs> so it's dark. It's a, Burnley, it's a Burnley supporter. My hair's getting long, but it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll have to repeat the question so that we can hear it when we, when we podcast it. But what's your name, mate? Uh, Nick Pickles. Um, I work in Westminster, so very, very interested in, uh, in what's going on in the past week. We've been told British agents always act within the law. When do you think we might get an answer to if British agents were involved in illegal rendition of well, foreign prisoners? Okay. When do you think we might get an answer on when, if uh, yeah. British agents right, okay. were involved in right. uh, illegal rendition? I'm afraid I have to give you a slightly po-faced uh, answer to that, because you, as you may know, I assume you know, I'm a defendant in an action brought by a man called Mr Bell Harge, uh, who's a Libyan national, who is alleging that the British government, uh, various parts of the British government, and I as Foreign Secretary, were complicit in his unlawful rendition. Uh, that action is being vigorously defended by all the parties, uh, including my, by myself. And I really can't say anything more about that un until it's been through the court uh, processes, except to say, as I've said often enough, uh, that I, as Secretary, St Foreign Secretary, and indeed the same Secretary before that, always sought to act very strictly in accordance with my very clear legal duties. So the answer, direct answer to your question is, when will you get an answer? When the court action is through or is settled, um, and uh, when there is finally a, a, a proper inquiry into, into what had gone on, in which both sets of parties uh, have been able to take part. Okay. Uh, any up on the balcony? Yes, the gentleman there, what's your name? Um, for most of my life, uh, governments have done more with more on the whole, certainly in the post-war period. Do you think we're uh, entering a phase when this is becoming possible? Um, and is there a risk that instead of uh, just doing less, we're going to end up doing the same but more and more badly? Uh, so governments have always had to been able to do more with more. That's becoming impossible. Uh, can modern governments <laughs> <laughs> actually stop doing significant areas of things that they've accrued over the that they've inherited as responsibilities over the years? Well, I, I think the answer is they are stopping doing <laughs> uh, do, doing quite a lot. Um, I mean, you're right to say that the uh, prevailing mood uh, for decades has, has, be, has been that public span spending would increase. I mean, slightly ahead, actually, of the uh, increase in, in GDP. And that's now changed. Because um, GDP has shrunk, and we're, the present government is trying to r reduce the proportion of public spending to GDP. Um, so quite a lot of things are reducing. And a great untold story here is, uh, in Britain, is what's happened to uh, in, in local authorities, where there's been very substantial... Uh, job cuts and, and scaling backs of, of activities, um, and in some cases, you know, government with a small g has, has got out of things altogether. I mean, if you, if you think about, for example, um, the number of libraries that have been closed. Um, now, I don't approve of that. And I'm pleased to say, in my own area, 
Uh, the local authority, despite being under, under the cost, has not closed uh, libraries, but that sort of thing. Um, there's a final thing I'd just say is that, that what <coughs> local authorities as well as central government are having to do is just be slightly smarter and more imaginative. Um, we may not like them. I mean, in my own area, don't like the cuts. But one of the things that, that's happened is that um, a lot more volunteers have been brought in, for example, to run community centres or to clear, to do litter clearances. And uh, I, I don't approve of the trigger for that, but I do approve of the fact that it's actually binding communities more. Do you think that's sort of the big society by mistake? <laughs> well, it's, inter it's an interesting way of putting it, but, it, but, it, but it, 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 you know, we've got to learn from this process and be open about it. Um, we've got lots of community centres in, in, in my constituency. They were run perfectly well by local authority employees. The local authority ran out of money, so they're now run with some light touch by local some, some local authority managers, but by community associations. And I, was, I mean, I, and I do my advice surgeries in them, so I, I, I see them. And some of them are really buzzing in a way they weren't mm. before, um, because it's sort of local social entrepreneurship. Uh, ditto uh, uh, clearing up, and the leader of the council is terrific, uh, has, has developed this idea called It's Your Call. I'm saying, you know, tell us how, don't tell us what we've got to do to help you, tell us how you think you can help to help yourself, and we'll give you a bit of assistance. So it's, it's just trying to change a mood. Excellent. Uh, any from this sort of section of the room? Yes, the lady over there. What's your name, please? So who are the current states people in government and where are they coming from in the future? Well, I think... No, I, what I was going to say about states people, you, you sort of... The label is attached to you as, uh, as, as you get your pension. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I, you know, I was far from called a, a, a statesman, uh, say, when I was Home Secretary. Um, people call me plenty of other things. <laughs> uh, and this is a... Only been this, this group of ministers have only been in, in power for just over three years, which you mean to think about the fact that we, we were in power altogether for, for 13. So it's, it's quite, still quite f a fresh group of ministers and um, relatively inexperienced. Now, I think, for, for example, self-evidently, Ken Clark is actually, I think, pretty uh, statesmanlike um, and uh, a great sort of uh, perennial of, 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 of British <laughs> politics. Uh, what you see is what you get with him. Um, no, I've, I've, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything he's doing, or I agree with quite a lot, but I, th I think that um, uh, William Hague uh, fills the bill, uh, for example. Um, and time will tell about some of the other people in politics. I mean, one of the endless fascinations in politics is that those who are at the beginning, uh, if, you, if you think of, of, of politics in terms of uh, people's careers as a race, those who are, who are at the front when the starting gun goes off and are there after a year or, year or two, often have fallen away uh, after a period and, uh, and, and others who are plodding on uh, emerge more, cl more clearly, and that may happen. There is a feeling, though, isn't there, perhaps you know, there are still great characters in Parliament and, and states people in Parliament, but certainly in terms of the party leaders, that there's, they're all feel like they're cut from a similar cloth, that there's a lack of personality at the... At the, at the leadership end of yeah. the parties. Well, Why yeah. do you think that is? Well, I mean, the truth... Look, if, I mean, just... Uh, <laughs> what was that? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, in, term, in terms of the kind of demography of, uh, uh, of, of, of the leaders, they do come from similar backgrounds. Um, I'm sure Ralph Miliband would turn in his grave to hear that. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, they uh, led rather similar middle-class lives, uh, went to a good university, and um, in, in Ed's case went to a, a, a America, and I think um, Nick Clegg may have done the same. So, it, I, I, and they're all roughly the same age. Um, uh, so I think that's why they, they may uh, look alike, and, uh, and so it's not the same, not the same variation that there was. Yeah. But do you not think this is, is there not a problem with it, almost like the party management of politics that almost the machinery of politics seems to mistrust people with more eccentric or different personalities? I think look, the the or maybe their peers do. Yeah, I can only speak for the Labour Party um, here. Um, the Labour Party went. You know, when I went into Parliament, the Labour, Labour Party was a total shambles and it was a complete nightmare. Uh, and there wasn't proper organisation. And you, you prayed that there some relatively sane control freak uh, would come <laughs> along and lead your, your party uh, and just take it over. And then, yeah, indeed, a relatively sane control freak did come along. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and we won elections. Um, uh, and uh, you're, you're in a... These days, you're facing 24-hour uh, media. Uh, also, everybody can, can actually just feel in their pockets and uh, send a tweet around the world and stuff. So um, the, 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 the pressure on parties is much greater uh, than it was. That said, there's... there's uh, I mean, if, 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 you, if, you, if you watch what happens in Parliament, a lot of people have different, different views, although, because we are in opposition, we don't terribly want to give the papers... Uh, ammunition. Mm. Uh, a lot of c there's a kind of natural discipline. On the other hand, if you want to see what happens when you haven't got control freaks uh, running a Labour a, a party, look at the Conservative Party, uh, because uh, they are really very seriously divided, yeah. uh, and the, uh, the the political police, who are, you know, the whips, uh, really find it very difficult to corral people. And the consequence of that is you've now got David Cameron basically leading from the back. Um, which is not good for a party. Oh, indeed. Gentleman uh, here, what's your name? My name is Martin McGrory, and my question is, what is your view on the impact of the uh, you had on wealth inequality during the time of Labour government and the time of considerable economic progress? Your impact on wealth inequality yeah. during the yeah. period of the Labour government? Um, <coughs> we made a considerable difference to uh, narrowing um, inequalities um, and particularly to reduce, dramatically reducing child poverty uh, during that period. Um, we didn't, and, and it depends what measures you look at, if you, if you looked at the measure between the, the, uh, the, the, the sort of second top 10% going down to the second bottom 10%, that, that where the vast bulk of the population are, um, we did narrow uh, differentials. If you looked at the uh, difference between the very top and the very bottom, we didn't, uh, and the Gini coefficient, which measures inequalities, um, having risen quite dramatically under Margaret Thatcher, then was pretty flat. So w sh shortly, we did a lot. We could have done uh, a lot more. And one of the things we should have done, although it's easier to say this now in retrospect, is got hold of the issue of the obs obscene pay packets of people in the city and the financial institutions. Um, and that, but we didn't for reasons which you and I discussed, Matt. Um, and, it, and our lack of grip on the regulation was part and parcel of that. Okay, I think the lady down there wanted to question. Councillor Adam Smith, I just wanted to ask you, um, 
Your thoughts uh, on HS2? I'm in favour of HS2, um, and I, th I think it will make uh, a considerable difference to the north-south divide. It won't be dramatic. Uh, there is some evidence that where you put in uh, uh, very fast railways, um, they may draw people the other way, but, I uh, but coinciding with what has been a real resurgence of self-confidence in great cities like well, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, where it's going to go to first, and, and also obviously Glasgow and Edinburgh. I think that it, that it say, will help to rebalance uh, the, the north and the south. So I'm very strongly in favour of it. Um, and I mean, ju you know, just as when you, I, I went off to Brussels this time last week, um, uh, that that uh, in, in the, the establishment of HS1 has made a, a big difference to the south of England and to parts of Kent which weren't all that prosperous. Uh, as well as obviously making it a lot easier to get to, to Brussels if you want to go to Brussels. Okay, lady over in the corner. Yep. Yes. Were you thinking about my the reference to uh, grooming or to the veil? Yes, absolutely. To grooming? Yes. Okay. The veil um, will be interesting as well. Sorry? The veil will be interesting as well. Okay. The, the, well, I mean, just, just on, on um, grooming, um, I, I was asked, um, I think it was at the, at the beginning of 2000, when, when the 2009 or 2010, uh, anyway, I, I was asked on television, um, uh, in an interview with, with Newsnight from Black, Blackburn, what I, th I, I thought about the evidence. Actually, there's not the, in Blackburn itself, Touchwood, for good reasons, good policing, good, so, good social work, so far we've avoided any of these uh, terrible uh, 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 gangs that have, that have been prosecuted elsewhere. That's not what you said at the time. No, 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 it's no it, it, sorry, it was what I said, but I, I, I was being interviewed on national television to ask, being asked about, to make national observations uh, about, about it. And what I, what I said was that uh, whilst it was true that overall the proportion of sex offenders in prison, uh, uh, the, the, the disproportionate majority of those were white rather than um, other, other ethnicities, it was also the case that uh, there was a particular ph phenomenon of Pakistani men grooming younger white girls. Um, and, they, and they saw these white girls as easy meat. Now, I was criticised for using the phrase easy meat, and it, I probably could have chosen my words better. But do I regret the fact that I was that specific? No, I don't. Um, and some of my Asian friends said, who I have, I have lots, that I shouldn't have specified the Pakistani community, because in Blackburn, for example, we have a Pakistani and, and an Indian heritage community as well, I should have just talked talk about Asians and then they would have said fine. But the problem is, it is a problem specifically amongst the Pakistani heritage community for all sorts of very specific reasons I could go into. Um, it's much less of a problem amongst the Afro-Caribbean, I mean this problem, not, not other sexual offences, amongst the Afro-Caribbean or the, the Indian uh, community, heritage community, whatever their, their religion. And so I felt it was important to say it. And what happens, it happened is, so there was a great 
eruption and people were concerned about this and then I talked to people and explained my point of view um, and it hasn't been mentioned since. On the issue of the veil, um, well, what I, what I said in th that article I wrote, which was in October 2006, was that I thought that the veil was a barrier to communication and I prefer people not to wear it. Um, I made it, I wasn't talking about headscarf, which I absolutely defend to the last the right of anybody to wear a headscarf. I've got a brilliant woman who works for me in Blackburn who wears a headscarf um, and she's absolutely entitled to. Um, but I was talking about people who, who wear the full veil uh, and this arose, by the way, because a, a lady came in to see me who I knew uh, I'd met before, uh, some years before, when she wasn't veiled, and she opened the conversation uh, by saying, uh, wearing a full veil, Mr. Straw, so good to see you again, face to face. <laughs> anyway, I dealt with her problem, but also had a conversation with her about the irony of, of this and why she was wearing the veil. In, in fact, she said, as I again brought out in the article, that, that um, she'd made her own decision on this, um, and, and it wasn't her husband who, who told her to. But it, but it, but what, and, and I've never suggested that we should do what the French have done and make it a criminal offence, for Pete's sake. We've got to do this by persuasion. Um, but I, I do think it's a barrier to communication, and also, as I repeatedly uh, tell my uh, Asian friends, there is nothing in the Holy Quran which says people should be veiled. I mean, this, this, this is a, it's, it's cultural. The commentaries on the uh, Quran are called the Hadith, uh, and different schools of thought in, in uh, Islam have different Hadith which they follow. Um, and by some interpretations of some of the um, uh, Hadith, uh, you can find some warrant for saying... Be, women should be veiled, but even that's pretty thin. Um, I say it's cultural. And, and notwithstanding what my, the lady in front of me said, it's also, as far as I'm concerned, about male domination. Um, and, and I just think we all need to have a conversation about this. And I've not found in, in my constituency that people are you know, any less supportive of me than they were for having this conversation. I just think we, we should be mature enough about this to, to say that. Do you think there's a fear, not just amongst mainstream politicians, are <laughs> There's a fear not just amongst mainstream politicians, but particularly those on the left, of coming out and saying things like that. Yeah, there is a bit, um, but I, 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 th I think you can only in in politics you, you shouldn't go sit down and think you know how do I say something that will shock people. But you do need to think about the things you 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 feel, and then start thinking about why they've not been said publicly, mm. uh, and then think well why the devil shouldn't I say this publicly? I mean what's going to happen if I say it publicly? I mean, as, as, as often when, I, when that's occurred in, in my political life, it, it's happened by accident. I, I wrote that piece on it, about the veil. It had been sort of half running around my, my head. Um, but I, I was actually coming back from Brussels again. I was sat on, on, the, on the Eurostar uh, with a blank sheet of paper and a deadline, trying to think, what the devil do I write about? And I thought, <laughs> oh, yes, I know what I write about. Because I, I, I write about the veil, so I've scribbled it out. Um, and... My political advisor and the press man said this will be a story. I said, no, it won't, because I'd said exactly the same thing four months before at a conference organised by the Muslim Council of Britain, uh, and there were television cameras there, and not a word of what I'd said uh, was reported. Um, not one word uh, when I said it's exactly the same. 
So uh, it, it was printed, um, and it was just a slack news day. The power of print, indeed. Yeah. Uh, are there any questions? Sort of anyone at the back over there? I feel like I haven't come to that section of the room much. Uh, okay, this gentleman down here. I'll take two more questions. This gentleman, one more. If you can just ask for one sentence questions and one sentence right, answers. Okay. That's okay. So yes, yeah. If you were Foreign Secretary now, would you invade Syria? And if not, how does it differ from Syria Iraq? No, I wouldn't invade uh, Syria. Uh, it differs uh, a very great deal uh, from Iraq, but I've only got one sentence. <laughs> 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 uh, so happily, I can't explain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, was there another hand up here? Yes, you, sir. A lot of what I said was Tory. Why, 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 why is what I've said Tory? Come on. Because it's sort of right. Well, yeah. <laughs> you, you haven't made any big Labour statements now. Yeah. So new Labour. New Labour, exactly. Has there been a movement for sending your own party? No, I mean, I, 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 look, uh, I, I, I don't... <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not... I've been accused of plenty of things. I'm not in, the <laughs> <laughs> in, in my life, I, I, I have to say, I'm... I'm I've got to my current age. I've, I've never been accused of being sounding like a Tory before. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there's not I, too much difference between the current Tory government. Well, I think there is. I, mean, I, I think there's loads, as a matter of fact, uh, and I'd be happy to go into it. And and I, I didn't exactly support the Conservatives' uh, criticism of the last Labour government. The, the last Labour government, the Conservatives were trying to mythologise the last Labour government and pretend that we were a bunch of total incompetence and uh, we squandered the public's money. And we didn't build any new hospitals, didn't build any new schools, we didn't repair the damage which th that 18 years of Thatcherism and Major had done, and the uh, unbelievable underinvestment in uh, British uh, institutions that had taken place in that. I'll take you to Blackburn, all right? Um, and indeed, you can still get this on the web, um, uh, where there's a little um, YouTube film about the change that happened in my constituency in uh, between 1997 and uh, 2010. The dramatic change that had happened because of a Labour government that didn't happen under a Conservative government. And it's that sort of change, the fact that we have improved life's chance answers. Leave aside uh, Michael Gave's po point about grade drift. In my constituency, one in three kids, just one in three, got five or more good GCSEs in 1997. It's now three in four. All right? Uh, and we've got uh, at the beginnings of university. In, in, the, in Blackburn, in the town, and, and doing Lancaster University degrees, high-quality degrees for kids who'd never had those opportunities. Um, social, there's been a dramatic change in people's opportunities in the town. It's not been good enough, but it could have, but it, it, and it could go further. But the last point I just make in, by, about is, is this. Why am I proud to be Labour? Why would I not be, be a Conservative? Because one of the things the Labour Party has done, and one of the things that I've claim some credit for, is it's not, about, not, dis not just about the economy. We've changed the, people, the way people relate to each other. Uh, we've changed the way people of different coloured skins relate to each other, different religions, and uh, different, wh whether men or women, and also what their sexuality is. And I just say, if you are a Conservative, I don't know whether you are or, or not, uh, just say this, I'm delighted that a large part of the Conservative Party is now in favour of treating black people the same as white people and Muslim people the same as Christian people. Very good. But when we were putting through the legislation, they were against it. I'm delighted they're now in favour of treating people who are gay or lesbian 
in the same way as people who are straight. But I do have to tell you uh, that I was in the House of Commons when Section 28 was brought in. It was one of the most disgusting pieces of legislation I've ever had to sit through and fight. And also, when I personally moved the legislation to bring down the age of consent for gay men to 16, the same as women, uh, uh, same, same as for straight people, um, the Conservative Party blocked that legislation, stopped us legislating for two years in the House of Lords. So, so, I'm, and I'm, so I'm pleased about the, the change in the Conservative Party, but it wouldn't have happened without the Labour Party. Uh, and one of the reasons why I'm in the Labour Party is because I believe of in equality between people and treating people for who they are, uh, not for the label they have or the colour of their skin. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end. Uh, that brings us to the end of the evening. We keep the discussion going, perhaps in the bar. Uh, it's been not just tonight. It's been a, a fascinating show, but the, the last six have been a, a real pleasure to do here at St James's. So thank you for coming down to all the ones that you've been coming down to. Uh, we'll be back in September. Uh, until December as well. I'm doing a one-off uh, in July at the British Library, uh, but we'll be back at the St James's uh, in September after the Edinburgh Festival. So thank you. If this is your first time, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've been more than once, uh, please do tell your friends. And, well, nothing more remains to be said than uh, a massive, huge round of applause, please, for a phenomenal guest, Mr Jack Straw. <laughs> <laughs> On oh, the day, one more thing. Just to say one more thing, uh, the books are available for sale at the back and I think Jack's happy to sign a few as well. Uh, it's a great book, so if you're interested in politics, if you enjoy what you've uh, heard tonight, then do buy a copy. Thank you very much. Well, that was Jack Straw, ladies and gentlemen. What a great guest he was. How fascinating. The, the insight, particularly on Hans Blix, David Kelly in Iraq, and the bit I almost tipped off about at the start was his explanation of why he voted for, for the Iraq war, because I think he put it in a way that I've never heard before, arguably more effectively, I think, than, than Tony Blair has. Um, and I'm someone who supported the war at the time and still do now. So to hear the reaction, which was almost a stunned silence in the room, was was great, really, because with Iraq, there's been a, an awful way in which the two sides of the debate have been portrayed. And if you're in, you know, in favour of the war, as I was and am, you're seen as someone who's somehow bloodthirsty or immoral or someone who almost took some sort of bizarre pleasure in the, in, the, in the death of innocent people. And, of course, for those of us that supported the war, it was precisely because we wanted to avoid more bloodshed was the primary reason I supported it. But also, those of us who were interested at the time and took a detailed interest in it, remember the March to War, remember the UN resolutions that were continually breached, remember Hans Blix telling us that he had weapons of mass destruction. And I think those key details have been lost in the fog of emotion that's followed. So all credit to Jack Straw for sticking to his guns, for want of a better phrase. But it was a remarkable uh, evening. And I think all of them so far, looking back on the six shows now, they're gigs. Like They're not like branch meetings or town hall meetings. They're, they're nights of entertainment. And I really hope that comes across on the on the podcast because the atmosphere in there on those Wednesdays is absolutely electric. So thank you for downloading it. If you've been to the show, thank you very much. And I've had the opportunity to speak to a few people afterwards and everyone's always very nice and polite. So do come and say hello if you want to uh, after the next one. The next one actually isn't at the St James Theatre. It's a one-off special for the British Library uh, as part of their propaganda exhibition. That'll be on Monday the 15th of July. And Matthew Paris is my guest. So obviously in terms of propaganda, he's, uh, he's got a view of both sides of it, having worked... Um, 
in politics. He was a Conservative MP and obviously since then has had a, an extensive career in the media. So he'll have a, a balanced view, I'm sure, as he always does. Very entertaining, Matthew Paris, and always reasonable as well. He's a politician you can't help uh, and a commentator you can't really help but like. So he'll be great. Monday the 15th of July at the British Library. For details and tickets, go to mattford.com. I'll be back at the St James Theatre in September. I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival doing my show, uh, also called The Political Party, but it'll be an hour of stand-up uh, during August. So if you're up there, do uh, do come and see us up there. You, tickets are available through the uh, EdFringe website, which is edfringe.com. I'll try and put something out in August, because um, uh, there's always a big gap between podcasts every week, because they're recorded every month. But then obviously it'll be two months in between July and September. So I'll try and get something out in August. But just thank you. Thank you for downloading it. I really hope you enjoy it. This has become a real passion project for me and something that I really have grown to love and care about as much as you know I love politics anyway. But to be able to make something that people have been so kind about is, um, is very enjoyable. So I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, if you can come to the live shows, I thoroughly recommend it. But just thank you. for. I always feel like I'm leaving a voicemail message. Uh, when I'm recording these, I always feel uh, like I'm on the phone to my mum or something. So uh, I hope you keep him well, and um, you stay safe now, and uh, be careful, and hopefully I'll see you soon. Okay, ta-ra.